I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Ellen Halliday, Deputy Editor at Prospect Magazine, and today I'm delighted to be joined by three insightful guests, John Lloyd, who is a contributing editor at the Financial Times, Will Hutton, political economist and columnist at The Observer, and Taj Ali, who is a writer and a member of the Enough is Enough campaign, fighting the cost of living crisis this autumn and winter. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since our last issue of Prospect came out, but I think it's fair to say that the cover is still pretty relevant. We should say that we're recording this on the afternoon of Friday, the 23rd of September. And a few hours ago, the Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, announced a slate of economic measures in a mini budget, which he says will create economic growth, but which some others say are essentially a tax break for the wealthiest in society. In that recent issue of Prospect, we put the words enough is enough on the cover. And in the essay that goes along with it, John argues that a looming recession, the cost of living crisis and rising inequality could mean that an actual popular uprising is now more likely than it has been. In the same issue, Will wrote a piece detailing what he says were the elements of Britain's failed economic orthodoxy and arguing that the consequences are now coming home to roost. These ideas form the basis of Taj's work campaigning to push back against a society he and his colleagues say is run only for a wealthy elite. So we have to, I think, this afternoon start with this mini budget with Kwasi Kwarteng's announcement, which included sweeping tax cuts for the highest earners. Will, could you start by outlining what you think these measures will mean for people? Well, I mean, first of all, this is... the biggest array of tax cuts I can recollect in my professional career, 50 years, the biggest for 50 years. The top 5% of the population will get most of the largesse. Um, will they stimulate growth? Um, the first uh, the first economic forecasts I've seen um, suggest that actually by the second half of 24, in other words, when an election might be held, Yes, the economy will be growing. The recession will be over and it will be it will have been over quicker than it would otherwise have been and it will have been shallower than it otherwise have been. Will it be sustained? I don't think so. These are kind of sugar rush tax cuts. They don't build, you know, the sinews of sustainability, uh, sustained high investment, sustained R&D, the kinds of companies that... Um, come forward with business models that work and aren't fashioned by these kinds of tax cuts, certainly not by the kind of the VAT holiday uh, and 
for you know doubling it so that the first quarter million pounds of buying a house is now is now stamp duty free i beg your pardon not vat stamp duty so you know these kind so i mean it's a kind of desperate throw in a way uh quasi quatang and Liz Truss are determined to show that notwithstanding everything brexit does work and they need decisively to do that it has been six years now of stagnation since we voted for breakfast brexit as a country and the economy has not done well and the promises have not been kept and they know that actually opinion in the country is moving against brexit so this in a way is an act of uh, it's an act of recklessness or boldness depending on your point of view to demonstrate that actually notwithstanding everything there are gains and opportunities from brexit personally i think you're with interest rates almost certain now to approach 5% that's now what the markets think which means mortgage rates of 7% 8% the housing market which is a great driver of british consumer growth is going to go sour on them and i i suspect that actually the breakout that they want to see if there is any breakout will be very short lived yeah okay fascinating i mean so among the measures that we've seen as you say the stamp duty tax the cut in the top in the tax rate for the highest earners and all based on the idea that some of you know some of the benefits of a of a an, a growth economy would trickle down it's kind of a widely discredited idea by now i think it is trickle down economics um, it does give you it does give you short lived sugar rush uh boosts of the type i've described and politically i think it might be quite difficult for the labor party because you know what what trust and time will say is look you know we did something bold the economy is on the is on the move give us the mandate to follow through and deliver for another 5 years that's what the message will be 2 years hence so tash i mean this is a very interesting moment in terms of your campaign and the mounting economic pressures that you're talking about on people who are not the highest earners in society the people who are already feeling the squeeze what was your reaction to the budget this morning I mean to be honest with you I was quite shocked. I know ideologically where Liz Truss sits, but I thought you know she would be receptive to the public mood in the country, the fact that many people are struggling and what you've seen are tax cuts effectively for the richest 1%. And I think it's quite arrogant the way they've come across and they've pushed this budget. It's almost like they couldn't care less if people are going to struggle to heat their homes this winter and you know they're just completely detached and divorced from the struggles of working class communities in towns like mine in Luton where we had a postal worker that I met on a picket line and she was telling me how all her money from her wages is goes on her rent goes on paying her bills and she's got nothing left and that's why she was on strike and then not only did they make these sweeping tax cuts for the rich but they also demonized workers who are fighting for better pay and conditions fighting against real terms pay cuts apparently they're militants our teachers our posties the people who kept the country going during the pandemic the people who create wealth in this country are the bad guys but the people hoarding wealth are the good guys and yeah i think this is going to create a lot of anger and yeah there is a very strong sense of disillusionment with this current government and i think that's clear for everyone to see you were saying that last night you had an event in Luton and the kind of numbers of people that came out there do, do you think that these policies are the messages are filtering down to people are they being energized mobilized by these changes i think what i really like about the enough is enough campaign is it really centers the issue of class and it's something we don't talk about enough and for the last few years we've had this very divisive culture war rhetoric luton for instance voted 55% 
for Brexit. And this campaign has brought together people from across different communities. And I think the five demands are things that people can unite around, fighting against real terms, pay cuts, fighting for a right to food, fighting for decent housing. These are things that all of us can get behind. So I do think the message just does come through to people. I think often the criticism is, well, what's this going to achieve? You know, what's turning up to a rally going to achieve? How do you actually make a difference on the ground? And that's never an easy thing. I think for us, it's about making that incremental change on a local level, supporting your food banks, supporting workers on a picket line, but also putting pressure on a national level for government to do better. So, so John, in your excellent piece for the recent issue of Prospect, you wrote about enough is enough and you, you identified that anger that Taj says he's seeing and also the fact that class poverty is now at the kind of centre of, of wage disputes, of all of these conversations that are going on. Do you think that the mini budget will accelerate the anger that you saw? You talk about a possible uprising even. How does this fit in? Uh, well, I defer to Will to for the details, but uh, what they're doing is going pretty much hell for leather for growth through tax cuts, mainly. I think uh, that some of the headline things, like not keeping the the wages and, and bonuses of the city workers in check, as had been previously mooted, but letting these go rip, will cause a fair amount of anger. They're saying that that's good for attracting investment. It may be. However, it's also good for attracting the charge that these people who are already very rich are getting richer and the poor will get poorer, or have already got poorer for some time. And that's what, as it were, fueled what I was suggesting might happen. What we haven't said, which is, let me haven't said it because it's fairly obvious, is that since the pandemic, people who were working usually in fairly low paid or medium to low paid jobs, uh, driving the buses, working in the supermarkets, cleaning the streets and so on. These people carried on working and most of the people, middle and upper middle class, could carry on working in their homes. And that, I think, has fueled a certain sense that for those who were carrying on working and are still carrying on working on relatively low wages, that the class sense has become more sharply defined. I said that that before in industrial action, the only industrial action in our time really has been which used class and a certain amount of insurrection was the miners' strike of 84-85, led by Arthur Scargill, which spoke in class terms. Now, many of the union workers, the union leaders are speaking in roughly the same terms, not just about what their what their members deserve, but what the working class deserve, both for carrying on working, but also because they constitute and have constituted for some time a very distinctly different uh, class of society um, in which they have felt not just that they're not earning much, but they're not getting much respect or status. That's something which isn't confined to the UK. It's very obvious in the United States. It's very obvious in Italy, where I've just been to find out about the election. It's it's true across Europe and, and elsewhere. And that division, that more dramatic division between the haves and the have-nots has become I think much clearer and causes more resentment. And hence, when things get worse, as they probably will do, 
in the autumn and winter, then that's the time, I think, when we, one might expect some kind of insurrection, however, however defined. It's fascinating, that point of international comparisons. I want to come back to that later. But Will, do you have thoughts in response to, to John's comments there about the bleakness of the picture that you, you were already speaking about a few, a few weeks ago? It is bleak, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, there are, um, there are millions of people who are going to be one paycheck away from real problems, and the people are going to run out of savings. As the Nash Institute forecasts that four million people will run out of savings by the end of 24, and that's not going to change very much with, these kind of, with, the, with this budget. But what worries me is not, you know, I mean, the, that, the, the desperateness of the situation of you know, many millions of people Will it translate into um, uh, any support for progressive politics? And there I'm, you know, what worries me really is that actually the minor strike certainly didn't. John cited that. I mean, he could have, 10 years earlier, there was a very successful insurrection led by the Peace Industrial Relations Act. And ultimately the bill was dropped, which is probably the most, and that's 50 years ago, but that's the most successful I can recollect, but since then, these movements tend to burn out, or if anything, a kind of a silent majority come forward and actually vote for the Conservatives as the custodians of, of stability. So even after the poll tax, where there were you know, huge kind of civil disobedience on, on not paying the poll tax, I mean, two years later, a 20% poll lead for Labour dissipated and John Major won the election. So I'm kind of very concerned. I mean, I really understand the need to kind of get out there and and campaign. But I, uh, I mean, the Tories are canny, and they history demonstrates that they tend to win rather than lose um, these moments. I mean, what what's required, I think, is a really powerful um, alternative way of actually putting the economy back on its feet. And I I think I mean, you know, addressing. Kind of the the kind of investment shortfall in addressing uh, the kind of really disappointing trade figures. I mean, very. I can't think of an economy uh, since 1945 that has successfully grown over over a period of years without very strong export growth. Um, and actually, it's hard to think what our exports would be. And given that we're not in the single market and customs union, which used to be our single, our biggest market, close to half of our exports, who's going to take kind of any export boom that we could muster anyway? And that's before you think about how private sector investment, which has been so kind of ghastly and poor and low for so many decades, I mean, what is going to revive it? Uh, this package of measures, I doubt it. So you know what you have is you have a kind of almost a political gridlock, um, and and and. I'm not sure that you know social movements and, and talking about insurrections, which may, that may happen, will actually break that um, gridlock. Because I think that what's required to break that gridlock is a really kind of um, credible, progressive agenda. Um, it's kind of emergent, um, and the elements of it in what Keir Starmer and Rachel Reeves are offering, but it's not there yet. Whether they're, whether they're slender pole lead at this stage in the cycle, it should be much greater given how desperate things are, will actually survive the way to which the centre-right press will get behind this kind of bunch of measures and congratulate Kwarteng and Trust for their boldness and their vision. And this is back to the heyday of Mrs Thatcher, seizing the opportunities of Brexit. I mean, you can write the script and actually... Uh, 
you know, I, I, insurrections will be seen as far from kind of being the, a force for new and a force for rejuvenation and requiring attention will be seen as noises off that should be kind of disregarded or even suppressed. I'm very concerned about the way politics may kind of run the next couple of years. And I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but uh, you can see what the political strategy is underneath this economic strategy. What is happening as well, though not so much in this country yet, is that the progressive forces, uh, and actually also the centrist, even centre-right forces, in, in country after country, in Sweden, in France, in Italy, in Spain, in the Netherlands, are now being surpassed by, replaced by, what you could call, I suppose, sovereigntist nationalists. A, and in both Italy and Sweden, two countries extremely different within the European Union, uh, they're, they're entering government or are, about, or, or are probably going to enter into government. We haven't had the Italian election yet. And these are representing increasingly working class, lower middle class people. They're being represented by these forces more in these countries than they are by the progressive forces, by the Labour, Socialist, Social Democratic parties. And there too, I think, the clash will come sooner or later, depending on how militant these new forces are in government or coming into government. It may happen here too, it hasn't happened yet, but it will take a powerful Labour Party, which has got the public behind them, which we haven't seen yet, to stop it. Yeah. Well, you're arguing and just this, this insurrection is going to come from the right, not the left. Yes, what is defined as the right, the nationalist, sovereignist, populist right. Called right, I think, because they're also in terms of cultural issues against you might call the, the liberal agenda of the last 30, 40 years. And I'm just not sure about that. I've been very I'll, I'll, I'll keep quiet because it's Taj's turn. <laughs> yes, Taj, it would be brilliant to hear your response, I guess, to, to Will's suggestion that the left has kind of, in you know, past, in his, past historic occasions, potentially not been able to change the political system in the way that it wanted. And then, and also John's suggestion that maybe there's a, risk from the right at this point, co-opting mm. this crisis and people's anger yeah. and discontent. Yeah, it's very interesting because I think, you know, public polling suggested quite recently that the British public do support very sort of left-wing economic policies like nationalising the railways, taxing the rich, but they also have some very socially conservative views as well. And it's always been a difficult one for political parties to navigate that. And I think in 2019, Boris Johnson was actually appealing to many working class voters with the single most effective political slogan in British history, which was get Brexit done. That won people over, whether you believe it was right or wrong, people were attracted to that simple message. And I don't think that Conservative Party voters share the same beliefs. And I think you've got different groups in that party supporting that party that can be won over by a progressive force. And it was very interesting because this Enough is Enough campaign could very easily be something run by the far right, where minorities are scapegoated for society's problems, where the conception of the working class is one in which it's a white working class fighting against immigration, multiculturalism, a globalizing world. And that's why I think it's so important for the left to actually challenge that and to actually say, we are the party of the working class, we are the movement of the working class. And I think for far too long, the left has been detached 
from working class people. I think a lot of working class people have a hatred for left wing people and for liberal people. And that's not something that's going to be reversed overnight. So it is going to be a challenge. And I think having the trade union leaders, people like Mick Lynch and Eddie Dempsey, I think they can communicate a message far more effectively than a politician that has never been speaking to workers on a picket line that's never been in working class communities. And I think, you know, that social distance, Darren McGarvey, the Scottish writer, wrote a brilliant book, The Social Distance Between Us, which is about the gap between policymakers and those most impacted by policy. And I think it's that social divide between the poorest in our society and the wealthiest that can be a breeding ground for the far right, but it can also be mobilised by the left as well. You're off to, I think, Labour Party conference or at least the surrounds as well in Liverpool this weekend. What kind of conversations do you expect to be having there with Labour Party politicians, Labour leadership about these issues? So I'm not actually going to the Labour Party conference, but I will be attending Tribune rallies, Enough is Enough campaigns and The World Transformed. And actually, I've never been to a Labour Party conference. And to be quite frank with you, I'm not a massive fan of the Labour Party. And that's because... From my perspective, I grew up in Luton at a time when 46% of kids in this in my town were growing up in poverty. We have the highest rate of homelessness outside of London. And I've always felt that a lot of those politicians are quite detached from communities like mine. When we look at the Labour Party today, you've got a leadership that says to its MPs, don't stand with workers on a picket line. We're not going to back pay rises for workers. And for me, it's the Labour Party needs to ask itself, what do you stand for? What do you believe in? Because you can't be two things at, at, at once. You need to decide what you're for. And many people are asking the question, what exactly is the Labour Party for? Are you for Labour? Are you for the working class? Are you for the, the trade union movement that set up your party? Or are you for a middle class base who are quite frankly detached from working class communities? The Labour Party and government have done great things. They've reduced child poverty. They've also done some horrible things like the Iraq war. So I do see the importance of making sure we have people in power that can have progressive policies. But I think there's also a space for people outside the political party structure to affect change as well. John, in, in your piece, you you did kind of hit upon that that sense that I think Taj has just expressed that, that the Labour Party hasn't sort of seized upon a lot of the feelings in swathes of, of the population at the moment, it hasn't capitalised on that. And that's where this gap perhaps is emerging in the UK, but also in other countries for new forces to capitalise on. Do you recognise the the picture that Taj painted? And, and what kind of comparisons do you see with other countries? I certainly see the what Taj has painted, and he's quite right. Indeed, the leader of the second largest union, Unite, made a speech after... Keir Starmer sacked the, the junior spokesman for not for standing on a picket line, and she said, um, "We we are the party at work in the streets and so on. The Labour Party is the party in Parliament, and it's not doing its job." Uh, she said something like, "Quite frankly, the Labour Party no longer represents the working class." That's a very strong statement from a union which now and historically has given usually, and I think now too, most of the funds to the Labour Party to run elections and so on, more than any other union. So that the idea that Labour is now no longer attached uh, to the working class has become much stronger. Though one has to also say, and I'm, I'm interested to hear what Tal thinks of this, that the Labour Party has ever been 
since its beginning, really, and its beginning was largely created by middle-class intellectuals in conjunction with the trade unions of the time. So it was, a, it was always, if you like, a cross-class party. Uh, middle-class intellectuals, and not just intellectuals, I mean middle-class, if you like, progressives and so on in, in various walks of life, now perhaps especially in the media, were drawn to the Labour Party and, and so were the working class uh, through their unions and beyond the unions. What has happened in the last 20, 30 years, possibly Taj will know better than I about the exact timescale, is that the Labour Party's membership has become, in, become increasingly bourgeois. It, and I, indeed, I saw this myself when I was living in, in Hackney and in the Labour Party, that the, the, party, the party groups were losing the working class members in favour of people like me, I suppose, uh, a journalist. And that's accelerated, if anything else, especially perhaps in London, not so much in the North and, and Scotland, but still more or less everywhere. Hence what Starmer has to do, and indeed any Labour Party leader has to do, is to both represent the, hist the historic founders of the party, working lower middle class, as well as the new, the new groups, and somehow bring them together in a common progressive and even, I think now, militant position. And that militancy, I think, and where perhaps Starmer is missing the beat, that militancy is now coming up from, from the workers, from the trade unions, from the manual and service unions, and from the kind of people that he was talking about who are voicing this. Christine McEnay, who's the leader of the the most, the biggest union, mainly public service workers, said at her conference a wee while ago that poverty is a choice of the of the ruling class. Poverty is a choice of the ruling class, which is now in big letters in the in the foyer of the of her union, and that kind of language has not really been heard before. And Mackinay is, in union terms, in labour terms, a moderate, a and yet. She's voicing what you might call a vast frustration and a sense that we have not got what we deserve, not just because we worked all through the pandemic, but also historically. And that, bringing that up now, and making that part of the politics of, of the day, seems to me to be, to, to be different from what it was before the pandemic or even even before 2008, when the, the financial crash happened, and possibly partly because of the financial crash, which of course crash, which of course impinged more on people on lower incomes than it did on higher. Yeah, I was just going to say on that point about kind of the Labour Party membership and how it's become more middle class. I, f I found that very interesting because when I went to university, I went to University of Warwick and many of the members of the Labour Society were privately educated. And, you know, there's, n there's nothing to say that people who are born into wealth and privilege can't be socially progressive. Uh, but I did see that um, there was a divide because, you know, my community where I grew up, had very little in common with members of the, that progressive party. And it was one of those things about, you know, how do you communicate? And I think what perfectly kind of encapsulates that divide was the Brexit referendum, because the vast majority of the Labour Party membership voted to remain and supported remain. 
But Labour Party constituencies, the vast majority of Labour Party constituencies voted leave. And, you know, in 2019, the Labour membership decided that we are going to say we want a second referendum. And that was a disaster at the ballot box because many of those traditional Labour voters were very strong advocates of Brexit. And that's it. That's the a perfect example to demonstrate why we need more working class people in the party structure, because they can talk about their own lived experience and they can really tell the tale of working class life. And I think, you know, the point you made about the Labour Party being founded by middle class intellectuals, the Fabian Society, for instance, alongside the trade unions. I think, of course, any political party should be trying to appeal to all sections of society. I think what the Labour Party lacks at the moment, and Keir Starmer in particular, is principles. I mean, you can't stand for a leadership election on 10 pledges and then break the vast majority of them and then expect people to trust you. And that, for me, was quite disappointed. I have far more respect for somebody who tells me where they stand, even if I disagree with them. At least I know what Tony Tony Blair stood for. At least I know what Margaret Thatcher was about. Tony Benn spoke about signposts and weathercocks and how signposts they tell you what they stand for and weathercocks, they spin in whatever direction public opinion is blowing. So short-term survival, that might work. You might have a short-term poll lead, but long-term, you need a vision. You have to give people something to believe in, something to be inspired by. And I think that's what the Labour Party is currently lacking. Well, you're you're clearly going to be a fan of Liz Truss uh, because she's saying very clearly what she stands for. I doubt you are going to be a fan of Liz Truss. but So, I mean... Taj, you're working to galvanise support for this view that you have. And, and, you know, as you say, you're very critical of both of the main parties in UK politics today. What kind of change do you want to see in the immediate future, in the coming months? And how are you going to push for that to be enacted? I think the first thing, I mean, we've got a winter coming up that's going to be incredibly difficult for people. And I think the first thing is the real terms pay rise because you know the amount of workers we had a picket line actually five minutes away from my house the Arriva bus drivers were on strike and every five minutes I would hear a beep of a horn and a cheer and many of those people beeping in support of the bus drivers were refuse drivers they were paramedics they were teachers driving to school and that is the current situation that everyone across so many different sectors are facing real terms pay cuts so I think the unions have played a massive role taking strike action and it's, it's really important for companies to to recognize that working class people deserve better they deserve adequate pay really you know if you've got adequate pay then you can afford to heat your homes you can afford to put food on the table so what kind of enough is enough campaign the five demands ending food poverty you know i read a recent study that said 58 percent of teachers are having to feed hungry kids in school many of those teachers themselves are going through a lot of hardship stressed they're exhausted they're probably going to go on strike very soon themselves. So I think it really is about paying conditions for workers. And, you know, once you can solve that, once you can ensure that people have enough money and the sixth richest country in the world, these things are not unachievable. The amount of money that we waste to corporate tax evasion, for instance, that's money that could be used to fund the NHS the education service. And then when you've got a budget that that says, you know, we're going to have tax cuts for the richest 1%. Um, it just go, it goes to show that things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse. So, yeah, I think we need the Tories out. And 
it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. It doesn't look like we're going to have an election. So the Enough is Enough campaign, I've called a day of action on the 1st of October. But yeah, it is bleak times, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And so strikes are obviously a key part of the toolkit that you were talking about. So expect to see more strike action from multiple groups in the months to come. Yeah, I mean, on the 1st of October, you've got the kind of, I would say it's probably the biggest day of industrial action in a decade. You've got the railway railway workers on strike, the posties on strike, BT on strike. And you can see this kind of level of coordination with the unions. And a lot of people are saying general strike, whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. But I think there is this kind of mood in the country that, civil disobedience is on the cards, quite honestly. And I wouldn't put it past people to actually riot. You know, they, one trigger event, we saw recently the shooting of Chris Cabot. It's often you have economic, socioeconomic grievances in the background and one small event can trigger off riots. And this is the danger here, that if we don't nip this in the bud, if we don't provide for people, things could go in any direction. We don't know what the future holds. Yeah, John, a, a parting word from you just before we wrap up. I mean, it's a pretty tense picture there that Taj has painted. It's tense because it's tense. I mean, even in, in prospects, august pages, my piece was called Breaking Point, And the other one we were discussing is The Perfect Storm, Will's piece. A, not exactly looking forward with joy to the, the next few months. I, we can't. We can't because all over the the Western world and, of course, beyond, the next few years are going to be very, very hard, including, for example, in Germany, the richest and a most industrially successful country in Europe and one of the most in the world is losing presently its industrial and economic policies, way of governing itself because of the lack of, of Russian oil and gas into which it, which it trusted for the last several decades. Italy has got a debt which it can barely service. And so on. Everywhere now is, is struggling with, with both the results of the pandemic, the results of the war in Ukraine, and a general downturn in the world economy. There's only a limited amount that governments can do to assuage that. They should, and to an extent at least are, trying to cushion the blow of, of, um, of greater costs, especially of energy. But ultimately, the, the worst will fall upon those who can least afford it. And there's almost no way, it seems, as society is presently constituted, of getting out of that. Um, it would take extraordinary government to find a way through that, uh, to keep governing rather than being thrown out of office, and to give some sense of hope to the people that they govern. Yeah. Well, it's an incredibly complex coming together of economic and political factors that we've talked about here today. And we've covered extensively in the last issue, but I'm sure that these are issues, themes, stories that we're going to keep coming back to in the magazine. Um, because it's, as you say, it's none of, none of this is going away anytime soon. But that is all we have time for. So I would just say thanks so much to Will, who's already jumped off, and to, to you, John and Taj, for joining us today. 
If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then do grab a copy of Prospect. The current issue is out right now with writing from Will and from John, amongst others. Or go to subscription.prospectmagazine.co.uk to get your hands on the next one as soon as it comes out. That's all we've got time for. Do listen out for the next episode of the Prospect Podcast this time next week.